We are starting a series in Ephesians, um, and uh, I love Ephesians. To me, is the prince of the uh, books of the Bible because it talks about what I love the most, and that is the Church of Jesus Christ. And uh, so we're going to begin that series. Uh, just some background briefly. I'm not going to do a huge background on this, but Paul is writing this letter from prison. Uh, he is writing it to the Ephesians years after he had ministered there. Uh, the Ephesians, this little startup church, actually spread out to a bunch of house churches throughout the region. So this letter would be read by all of these churches. But just you know how countercultural like it was. I mean, this is... Uh, in the place where they worshipped Artemis. And there was the temple of Artemis there in that city, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a stunning structure. Uh, and that's kind of uh, the context in which Paul was preaching back in that day. Nobody thought about um, the God of the universe that we know and we believe in today. So that's kind of the setting, and I want to go through chapter one. I've entitled the message today, Blessings That Obliterate Shame. Blessings That Obliterate Shame. Artemis, uh, this is what they think the Temple of Artemis looked like uh, there in the city. It was the center of that whole region of the world in modern-day Turkey. Uh, and everybody had figurines of Artemis in their homes. Like, uh, she was this goddess of fertility uh, and hunting, so if you were going to go out hunting, you wanted a little statuette in your house because uh, you, you, you wanted Artemis on your side. So in fact, when, if you go back to when, in Acts, when Paul walks into Ephesus and starts preaching about this, this God that was in contradiction to Artemis, the little trinket salesmen, remember that, who were selling little statues, got together and said, hey, he's taking away our business, and if this catches fire, we're in trouble, we'll go under and they had a riot ensue and started shouting, great uh, is Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, and so this is, what, this is the church Paul is talking to. I think the theme of Ephesians, I mean, there are hundreds of commentaries and there are hundreds of ideas of themes. Uh, I believe the theme is that God has redeemed us to be the church, a community of love for his glory. And that's what you have there in uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, of the, uh, Paul talks about love in these six chapters 20 different times. Eight of the times is God's love for us. It hardly ever addresses our love for God. And uh, the majority of the times, though, it talks about our love for each other. And this is why I think the theme is God has redeemed us to be the church, a community of love for his glory. One of the be most beautiful pictures of the church are in the coming chapters here in Ephesians and probably core fabric to providence. What you saw this morning was an enactment of Ephesians chapter 2 uh, there in the church. So the flow in the book goes like this. God loves us and therefore we love each other. So chapter 1 is really all about God loving us. Now there are many ways to outline this first chapter. I'm only going to take the first 14 verses uh, but it is a really hard text to preach from because it is one sentence of 202 words. Uh, and it doesn't read uh, simply. One commentator said it's the most monstrous sentence conglomeration in the Greek language. There are 32 prepositional phrases, 21 genitive expressions, six relative clauses, and five adverbial participle clauses. 
and I need to do that in 30 minutes. So uh, it's a difficult passage to like understand at first blush. On the other hand, though, it's been praised for its fullness of words, its liturgical majesty. A lot of people think this is a song. It's, it's perceptible rhythm. Uh, and some, some, one commentator said it's a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and shifting colors. And Paul weaves this into this declaration of a praise to God for his work on our behalf. And why does this matter? What is, what is the big reason? Because you can actually read this and say, this, this is like a lot of spiritual jargon to me. Well, in Bible school, I remember reading about Charles Spurgeon, who said he always had the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And the job of the preacher was always to take the Bible, that ancient text, and take the modern situation and meld them together for the hearer. Uh, yeah, yes. Otherwise, all we need is to stand up and read the scripture and walk away, right? And this is what the preacher does, is they, they move it together. And as I studied the passage, I was like, where is the, what is the newspaper article that is our, in our current culture today that I think this text addresses. And what immediately came to my mind was this issue of shame. And I want to start by unpacking that a little bit before I dive into the text, because I'm reading a ton on shame right now. Hunter Hambrick and I are reading the book, uh, The Soul of Shame. Uh, my wife has been through this certification program where shame is a huge topic. Uh, shame uh, wasn't spoken of much in our culture until... In 2010, it came bursting on the scene with this little-known researcher named Brene Brown. <laughs> I knew I was going to have a struggle this morning. Uh, I got a lot of Brene lovers. I'm a Brene lover as well. Uh, but she spoke on the TED Talk stage in 2010 and gave a talk on the power of vulnerability. And it struck a chord with the culture. It surprised uh, everybody. It surprised her as well. But now she's one of the top three most viewed speakers out of 4,000 speakers on TED. The New York Times calls Brene Brown the new star of social psychology. Why, why did that talk strike oil? Brene Brown says shame in our culture is an epidemic. This inner sense of not matching up. This idea of I have these past skeletons in my closet. I, I look at porn occasionally. Uh, my spouse left me. I've had a DUI. I struggle with infertility. She, she genderizes it and says, you know, women have this shame uh, in our culture. They're, they're expected to do it all and do it perfectly, and you never let them see you sweat. And we constantly live under this uh, expectation that's unattainable, and, and it's a straitjacket to women. And to men, men can never be perceived as weak in this culture. And so there's this shame upon men as well. Shame is the idea that we've done or failed to do something, an ideal we've not lived up to. We're unlovable. We don't belong. We're not enough. We're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We're not pretty enough. We're not talented enough. And so we, and we often view like the shame person as their, their head's always down and it's a woe is me. But she even talks about how uh, shame is inbred in a narcissist as well. She says, narcissism is just the shame-based fear of being ordinary. And shame is different than guilt. Guilt, she says, guilt's, guilt says I've done something bad. Shame says I am bad. She defines it this way. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. Andy Crouch wrote in Christianity Today in 2015 an article called The Return of Shame. That what's happened in the culture now is, is actually with social media, 
we have a new whole sort of shame culture. Our, our life is on display for observation to the world, and we desire to be embraced and praised by the community because people dread being exiled and condemned. Our moral life, he says, this has shifted our culture. Our moral life is no longer what's right and wrong. It is actually built on this uh, continuum of inclusion and exclusion. So when I post something, it's not, I'm not looking for a value judgment. I just want to know, are people going to like me or reject me based on what I post? And if they don't, I'll be doxxed, right? They'll start shaming my reputation. Crouch says, everybody is perpetually insecure in a moral system based on an inclusion and exclusion. There are no permanent standards, just the shifting judgment of the crowd. We have a culture of oversensitivity, overreaction, frequent moral panics, during which everybody feels compelled to go along. If you're in missiology, uh, people, sociologists look at cultures on how they actually view themselves through one of three frameworks. There is the guilt-innocence framework. This is the Western-educated, industrialized world. There's the shame-honor culture, mainly in Asian cultures. And there's the fear-power type framework. That's, think more of like Russia around fear, power, and dictatorship. America has always been a guilt-innocence culture. But Crouch is making the point that we are moving from a guilt-innocence culture to honor-shame culture. And I think this has implications to the gospel. A lot of our gospel sermons are all preached on the guilt-innocence framework. Substitutionary atonement, right? That's it's a guilt-innocence kind of framework. And it's, it's true, but Jackson Wu, an Asian man, published his dissertation recently called Saving God's Face, a Chinese contextualization of salvation through honor and shame. And he bases the Bible is replete with themes of honor and shame and thinks it's the dominant metaphor of the ancient uh, text. When he says to Abraham, he says, Abraham, I'm not, I'm not going to make you this holy and perfect person. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. That's honor culture, right? Simon Chan says in Grassroots Asian Theology, there is more said in the Bible about shame and honor than there is about guilt and innocence. So there is actually a shift happening in the culture. where sh- why, This is why Bernays Brown's talk uh, went viral. So if it's shame that we're shifting to, shame, honor versus guilt, innocence, and Bernays says it's an epidemic, what is the solution then to the shame problem? This is what she says in her new book, Atlas of the Heart. She's basically saying, uh, shame grows in the petriness of judgment, secrecy, and silence. Then shame grows, and she says the solution is empathy. I, I would amen that too. She's not wrong, but I'm actually afraid that the solution prescribed is woefully inadequate to conquer the monster of shame. Because what's being posited as a solution is that simply that if I struggle with shame, then I find a friend and I speak it out and they show empathy to me, that's the solution for shame. I, I don't think I buy that. I don't think it it's actually goes far enough. And what I want to present to you this morning is what I believe is a book that will obliterate shame beyond purely friendship empathy. So I've chosen to outline it around the work of the Trinity and the blessings that the Trinity bestows upon us here in Ephesians chapter 1. And I, if I were to outline the chapter, this, these 14 verses, to keep it super simple, uh, I would say it's first about the selection of the Father, secondly, the sacrifice of the Son, and third, the seal of the Spirit. 
Because the greatest news in the world so far is that you as a believer have been given these great spiritual blessings. And when you become a believer and you become a follower of Christ, you don't just get heaven. You don't just get forgiveness of sins. You get God. You get God in all of his glory. So let's just unpack the text there and talk first about the selection of the Father in verses 3 through 6. It says, he chose us before the foundation of the world. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. This is actually talking about this doctrine of election. And we talked this out there. You can go down a rabbit hole on election. If you want to, it is one of the hottest debates you can get out there in theology schools. We have the idea of unconditional election that God uh, chose uh, before the foundation of the world who would be in his family you have another whole camp that says election is based on foreknowledge. God looked down the halls of history to see who would choose him, and then he elected them. You have a whole other strain of thought around corporate election, that God didn't choose individuals. He actually chose the children of Israel, and this is also how he chooses in the New Testament. He chooses the church, and when you become part of the church, you become part of the elect. And most people get hung up on that debate, but Paul does not enter into that part of the debate here. He's actually going against the teaching the Ephesians have heard and the fears they have because he needs to prove to them that this God, this Father who selected them, is better than superstition that they've been taught. They've been taught through the, the religion of Artemis, astrology, magical practices, the worship of Artemis. Uh, she had the signs of the zodiac prominently displayed on her chest as a necklace. But she provided this false hope to those who looked at her to break the chains of cosmic fate. They felt they were just at the mercies of these capricious gods. The Ephesians were used to paying large sums of money to local magicians for a spell to break a bad horoscope or to thwart the impact of demonic spirits. Paul is comforting them with the teaching that their fate does not rest with these uh, uh, one-off demonic impulses where people are subjected to these curses for the rest of their life. Their fate and their eternity rests in the hands of the one true God who chose them to be in relationship with him before the foundation of the world and before those demons were even brought into existence. That's what he's preaching to them. And, it, and, it's, and, and this God was big. Artemis, the story is told that uh, a guy actually, it's not hard to believe when you see what's happening in our culture today, but a, a guy walked into this beautiful temple, the seventh one of the world, and just burned it down. Uh, and this is why the temple doesn't exist today, because he just wanted to be known as the guy who burned down the temple of Artemis. He, he just wanted his 15 minutes of fame. And nobody can understand, why did Artemis not protect her temple? Well, it was the same day that Alexander the Great was born. So the story goes that she was busy helping the childbirth of Alexander the Great in another country, and that's why she couldn't be there to protect her temple. Aren't you glad that we have a God that's bigger than having to be away from a burning building who supervises all the childbirths in the world at one time? He, he chose us, but then he adopted us into his family, it says. In verse 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He adopted you. He adopted me into his family. In the ancient Near East, this uh, was known uh, in culture as the patria potestas. 
It meant this belief they had as a culture in the absolute power of the father. When a father had a child, he had legal right over that child their entire life. (laughs) One historian said, it gives the father the authority if he chooses to imprison his son, to scourge him, to make him work on his estate as a slave in chains, even to kill him. This right exists even if the son's old enough to play an active part in political affairs and if he's been judged worthy to occupy the magistrate's office and even if he's held in honor by all men, he still is subject to patria potestas. The father is in total authority. So when adoption came along, adoption took place there as well. It had two parts. The first part was it called emancipation. The, the patria, the father, would step up in this symbolic sale and he would sell his son three times to the person who wanted to adopt him. The first time he would sell it, and then he would take it back. The second time he would sell, take him back. And the third time he would sell, and then he wouldn't take the son back, and he would be formally adopted into the new family. The second step was called vindication. The adoptive father then presented his case for adoption to a Roman magistrate who legally transferred the child to his patria potestas, his absolute authority over the child. And what this meant, this was so powerful in what it meant in the transferring authority. Number one, the adopted person, the adopted son, they lost all rights in their old family, and they gained a new father, plus all the rights to be a legitimate member of the new family. Have you ever been to an adoption ceremony here in Colorado? It's so moving when they ask the new family to take the pledge. Do you treat them like your own? Do they get a part of the inheritance like any other kid? Secondly, they became heir to their new father's estate. And when there were other siblings, there were, they became joint heirs with the other siblings. All their debts were completely canceled. So if you owed money before you got adopted, that was wiped away. The, your legal record was expunged. The past had no effect on your new life. And then seven citizens witnessed all legal adoptions. And if the legitimacy was ever questioned, they'd bring those uh, witnesses into court to testify. So in the eyes of the law, this son was a brand new person. Can I tell you, Providence, when you become part of God's family, you are legitimately a brand new person. You have been transferred from the patria potesta of the the darkness of this world, Satan himself, to the heavenly father. And there's nobody better you want to have absolute authority and control over your life than God the Father. You you lose all the rights to your old family and your old ways, and you, you become a legitimate member of his family. You then become an heir of his estate and joint heirs with all of the body of Christ. All of your debts are canceled. Your sins are forgiven. Your past is wiped away. You are a new person. And, and in a couple of weeks, we'll go down to that dirty river called the Platte. In the shadow of the sign that says, don't walk into this water. It's polluted, right? And you know what? Witnesses will testify to you dunking into water and being brought into this new family. But then he says this, why were you adopted? So you'd be holy and blameless. This is the whole point of election. He did not choose you because you were holy. He chose you to be holy. And that doesn't mean to be perfect. It means to be set apart, to be different. 
our tagline, live different together. We are to be different and set apart people. This is a blessing. This is a a spiritual blessing that's bigger than any physical blessing. Because what does it mean? You belong. You belong. What a blessing. But then secondly is the sacrifice of the son. The sacrifice of the son. It says in verse uh, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. The Bible says he redeemed us. This is the idea of setting us free. The Son of Man, Mark 10 says, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's echoing, echoing Exodus terminology here. God raised up Moses, the Redeemer, and says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I'll free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with mighty acts of judgment. He redeemed us. Secondly, he forgave us. Redemption is the cause and forgiveness is the effect. God is not lenient with sin because sin had to be paid for and for the sinner to be set free, but it is all canceled. This is the cure for guilt, by the way. You have been forgiven. And then he says, he showed us the way to renewal. It says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. What is he talking about here? What is this mystery? He revealed it to us. A mystery is something that was kind of hidden in the past and is now made obvious uh, in the present. And the mystery was this beautiful gospel that was no longer just this covenant people of Israel, but now all people, Gentiles included, were part of this new body called the church, and he was going to unite everything underneath him. The gospel is not simply your ticket to heaven, but it is how God is renewing and restoring all things. And if you go to Revelation and it says to the church of Ephesus in Revelation, you've left your first love. It was this love for the mystery of the gospel in bringing all people together into Christ's church. This God was so superior to Artemis. Artemis was this um, kind of grumpy hunting goddess uh, of the woods surrounded by her followers. You did not cross her. There are several myths about uh, different men she interacted with. One young hunter named Actaeon sees her bathing naked, and she transforms him into a deer because she was so mad, and then made him be devoured by his own hunting dogs. Uh, In the story of Callisto, a girl is driven away from her company after breaking her vow of virginity, having laid with and been impregnated by Zeus. Artemis is the one who takes Callisto and turns her into a bear. And in some myths, she actually kills Callisto for uh, sleeping with Zeus. She's presented as a goddess who delights in punishing harshly those who cross her. She was known for divine retribution. How great it would be for the Ephesians. How great it would be for the Providencians to know that you are not at the mercy of this capricious, random justice, but you have a God who loves you, redeems you, and when he saw you commit your moral indiscretions, he died on the cross for you. He sacrificed for you. What does this mean? You are free and forgiven. This is a blessing. This is a spiritual blessing. And then lastly, this morning, the seal of the Spirit. The seal of the Spirit. He says in verse 13, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, 
It is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The moment you became a believer, you were sealed with the Spirit. What did that, what did that do? It denoted uh, ownership in your life. A seal was a mark of ownership in the ancient world. There was a, it was made of stone or precious metals, and there was an image engraved on it, like the figure of a deity, a hero, or a portrait. You would take that seal, your seal, and you would mark all of your belongings with your seal. Okay, Slaves and livestock were even marked by their owner. People sometimes declared themselves the possession of a deity where they would take uh, the image of a deity and tattoo it onto their skin and say, I belong to this deity. In the Old Covenant, the, the priest in the temple would actually wear a seal engraved with the phrase, I'm holy to the Lord. But in the New Covenant, what he's saying here is the true God has marked all of his people as belonging to himself by means of a seal. And that seal is the Holy Spirit of God. It is God himself, a member of the Trinity, who comes upon the moment of your belief and indwells you. And, and Jesus seals you. He marks you and says, you are mine. You belong to me. And when he gives you the Spirit, that is just the initial installment of the inheritance of being in the family. It's just God's way of saying, the best is yet to come. God's going to live inside you and guide you in your life and empower you and equip you for ministry and to be a blessing to the world. But that's just the first fruits. That's just the down payment. God values his people so much he's put on a deposit and he's going to complete the transaction in the future. I got a kick out of this story in my study. A guy in Maryland, his name was Jay Spites. And Jay, his father, passed away, and his father said, I'd love you to continue to study our family history. And so he would stay up late at night. He's, he's a pastor of a church, and stay up late at night in bed and research on Ancestry.com and all this kind of stuff. And then he got onto one site that would actually, like, plug your DNA in and then pop some stuff up. Well, three years ago, what popped up uh, late at night, 1 o'clock in the morning, was a match to a royal family in Benin in West Africa. So... The, he wakes his wife up, and he's like, hey, babe, you know, I might be related to a king. I might be related to some royal ruler in Benin. And she's like, hey, I have to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. Can you let me go back to bed, you know? Uh, fairly unimpressed by this thing that popped up. Just so happened a religious leader was coming through his town from Benin, and he walked up to the guy, and he said, hey, this thing popped up on my ancestry, and I found a match. So the man actually took his contact information, went back to Benin, and gave his contact information to the king. And then Jay didn't hear from the king, and so he decided to cold call the king of Benin. <laughs> and the king picked up the phone and hung up on him. So Jay called back the next morning, and this time the queen answered, and she spoke English. And she, he told her the story, and she gave him an email, and so he emailed back and uh, wrote out his story. And she wrote him back at 4 a.m. the next morning, and she said, quote, We are smiling as we read this. You are related to the ninth king of Alada. Come home. We will have a big party for you. He rolled over, woke his wife up, and said, I am royalty, I am a prince, and you are a princess. <laughs> and she was unimpressed again. But he bought a ticket, and he decides to go, and he is met by 5,000 people at the airport. He goes to the palace. Uh, for someone coming home, you have to walk around the palace three times. 
He couldn't believe how he was being treated, that he actually was being treated like royalty. He said, every time I met somebody, they would bow to me, and I'd bow to them, and then they would bow back to me, and then I would bow to them, and, and we keep bowing and bowing. And I said, what's the problem? He goes, you're not supposed to bow. You're, you're like a prince. So he just stopped bowing, and people kept bowing to him. And they put a crown on his head. They gave him a new name. The name was the child who came back. The second morning he was there, he heard a knock on the door at 5.30 in the morning, and a woman showed up and said, here are your new clothes. And he was like, man, I'm like Eddie Murphy, you know. Uh, he said, I've always worn Afrocentric attire, but to put on things that were made by my family was priceless. And this is Jay today. And he, he, the prince of Benin, he comes back home after six days of the party and tells his wife what happened, and, and she said, would you please go take out the trash? Uh, so he says, I constantly am being humbled and realizing uh, my new position doesn't impress everybody, you know. But I thought, what a beautiful picture. I've not even realized how much you were owned by a country, uh, how much you were, you were royalty and you didn't know it. And you have, a, you have a name that means that you found your roots. And what Paul is saying in Ephesians 1 is you have been given these blessings. And when you understand the blessings, they will obliterate shame in your life because you are now secure. You never have to wonder if you're royalty or not. It is all there. It is, it is DNA'd up. You're part of God's family. So let's go back and visit shame then. And let's look at that solution. You see why I feel this is inadequate? I think it's good, but I just think it's inadequate because we're, we're, I don't think Brene really grasped it where believers would, is there's a vertical dimension to shame. That we were born with, with this Adamic nature. We have this, this part where we want to do good, but evil is present with us. And the first full dose to conquer shame is Ephesians chapter 1. You have been born into this family, and you have been given all, you are seated with Jesus in heavenly places. But this is where Brown shines. She said, shame happens between people, and it heals between people. Oh, that, that's, that's a 10 out of 10 right there. And this is why she talks about empathy. And this is where I want to take just a little bit further. Where does empathy then take place? Where do I find the person that I can take and verbalize my shame to who will accept me, right, who will minister to me? I say the church ought to be the most empathetic place on earth, right? <clears throat> A loving church is one of the best antidotes to shame. I go back to the theme. God has redeemed us to be the church, a community of love for his glory, and that should beat back shame. Bible says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You know what the temple of Artemis looks like today? It is one pillar in a prairie with a stork nest on top. That's all that's left of Artemis. And what do you have today in the Church of Jesus Christ? Today, one-third of the globe, over two billion people, will bow and worship our God. The remedy for shame is being incorporated into a community with new, different, and better standards for honor. We better get honor and shame right if this is the new paradigm for culture. We ought to say honor in this community is not about being famous. It's not about seeking honor. It's not about boasting, 
This is actually a community where weakness is valued, where servants are raised up to sit at the table with those they once served. The task of the early church was to free its members from honor competition. And that when they actually experienced the shame of being part of Christ's family, they equipped them with a shame resilience to be able to handle that shame, to endure the low status in the Roman world while reaching out to the shameful, the ones that nobody else would touch, to be part of an inclusive community that would include everyone. Why? Because Jesus. He didn't step away from the shame of the cross. The cross was far from an instrument of execution. There were many ways you could practice capital punishment, but the cross was designed to maximize the victim's shame. From whipping along the route, to stripping them naked, to hours of exposure, to the mocking of passerbys, it was all about shame, and he bore it all. The beauty of the gospel is the gospel acknowledges your guilt, you're forgiven, and it acknowledges your shame, and the one who covers it all is Jesus. That is good news. And the Bible says that when Jesus actually went to the cross, he despised the shame. I want you this morning to feel like shame. I despise you. I despise this I'm not enough message that's echoing through my head, that's echoing through the media, that's echoing online. There's probably nobody better to write about this than the pen of John Piper. I'm just going to read what he says about what it means to despise the shame. And you are welcome to go unleashed in Amen Corner as I read this. Listen to me, shame. Do you see that joy in front of me? Compared to that, you are less than nothing. You are not worth comparing to that. I despise you. You think you have power? Compared to the joy before me, you have none. Joy, 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 that is my power. Not you, shame. You are worthless. You are powerless. You think you can distract me? I won't even look at you. I have a joy set before me. Why would I look at you? You are ugly and despicable, and you are almost finished. You cover me now with a shroud. Before you can say, so there, I will throw you off like a filthy rag, and I will put on my royal robe. You think you're great? Because even last night you made my disciples run away. You are a fool, shame. You are a despicable fool. That abandonment, that loneliness, this cross, these tools of yours, they are all my sacred suffering and will save my disciples, not destroy them. You are a fool. Your filthy hands fulfill holy prophecy. Farewell, shame. It is finished. <laughs> Dear God, to the praise of your glory, of your wonderful grace. We thank you for spiritual blessings. Lord, may your spirit do a work in our hearts. Obliterate the shame, dear God. May we see ourselves the way you see us. May we minister to each other and help uproot this debilitating disease of shame. So thank you for the spiritual blessings you've been given to us. As we come to the table, may we remember this great gift you've given us in the gospel. We ask this in your name. Amen.